as we come to communion, we take the opportunity to meditate on God's word, to apply that to our hearts, such that as we're partaking of communion, we're doing so worthily, we're doing so with knowledge. Our meditation today is from Colossians 2. So we're midway through a series. We'll start reading at verse 8. Colossians 2, verse 8, and I'll read through verse 15. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision, cir circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses having wiped out the handwriting of requirement that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the sacrifice of Christ, for his victory that is being worked out now through time and yet stands as an anchor in time where he conquered sin, he conquered death, he conquered Satan and his minions. And we look forward, Lord, to the day where uh, righteousness covers this earth. We give you thanks for this promise, for this truth. In Christ's name, amen. So before I get on to the new material, which starts at verse 10, I want to begin with uh, where we had been, uh, just briefly. In Colossians 1, we had emphasized throughout Colossians 1 in Christ, that Christ had taken our place, we were in Christ's place, and then we are in him. And so that's when we merge into uh, chapter 2. And in chapter 2, the first five, five verses uh, reflect Christ as our treasure. The next five verses reflect Christ as our master. Now we come to what we just read, and Christ is our savior. This is, of course, at the center of Christianity, and it's such a wonderful time for God to have brought this verse through in our series when we have all these folks here to hear the core of the gospel, that Christ is our Savior. Let me reread verses 11 and 12. In him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. We're obviously talking here of all things spiritual. This is not a physical circumcision. This is not a physical even baptism. This is spiritual. This is speaking of the fact that our souls were saved. The perspective on circumcision here that is presented here is not introduced in the New Testament. We tend to think 
of the Old Testament as being this and the New Testament being that. But there's a phrase I like to say, and it is the Old Testament in the New revealed, the New Testament in the Old concealed. But I want to comment on that because the New Testament is not entirely concealed in the Old Testament. There are points at which it shines forth, blindingly so. So bright does it shine that Christ rebukes the Pharisees, so obviously rebukes them for not knowing it. What is it that he told Nicodemus when he said that he, how, how am I to be born again? How am I enter, enter into my mother's womb a second time? He says, you are a teacher of Israel and you do not know this. He came down on him, bricks and stones and mortar and weight. I mean, Nicodemus should have known. Christ held him accountable for knowing. And so obviously we ought to know. So when we go to the Old Testament, let me flip to Deuteronomy 10. It's just a beautiful illustration of this. In verses Deuteron Deuteronomy 10, verses 15 and 16. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them. The Lord delighted only in your fathers. He's speaking to them of the fact that God had chosen them out of all the peoples of the earth. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them. And he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. So see, now, physical circumcision, do we do it ourselves? Obviously not. No, not at eight days old. You don't want that. So see, he's telling them, though, circumcise yourselves. So we play a part in this. We cast our sins upon the Lord, and he embraces us with mercy, with grace. And that's true for us. But that was true for them, too, in Deuteronomy 10, right as they're fleeing the Egyptians in the wilderness. It's still true for them. So, see, we don't want to think of the Old Testament as that and the New Testament as this. No, they're one thing. They're one thing. And we see beautiful glimpses of the new and the old. So now also, Paul introduces this concept of circumcision in Romans 4, and he does a great job there. All of Romans 4 is beautiful, but I'm going to read two verses. Or actually, I'm going to read uh, four verses, 9 through 12. Romans 4, 9 through 12. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For as we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness, how then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. That he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised. That righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So let's not get all wrapped around the axle concerning circumcision, baptism, the Lord's Supper. These do not save. We partake of them. God grants us grace through these when we have faith. But yet they that of themselves do not save. Christ saves. He imputes righteousness to us. So let me read verses 13 and 14 now in Colossians 2. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, 
having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Just earlier in our worship service here, we read about this. We read about this. Let me see, where was it? Deuteronomy 28, verse 58. If you do not carefully observe all the words of this book, all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring upon you and your descendants extraordinary plagues. Now, there is a truth here that they would never be holy enough. But did they accept and acknowledge that truth ever? Many did. Many came to faith. Many knew the Lord. Many lived under his grace in the Old Testament covenant. But some did not. They thought just this outward participation in all the ceremonial rituals was enough. But it was never enough. It was never enough. Only Christ earned God's righteousness. Only Christ. And that's only because he was born outside of the covenantal line of Adam. So only Christ could do that. So when we read in the Old Testament about having to adhere to every jot and tittle of the law in order to be righteous, we know that that's unattainable. So they had to cast themselves upon the mercy of the Lord. They had to know that to be accepted by God, God had to cover over their sins somehow. That was a mystery to them how that could be possible. Very, very clear to us. But yet you read Isaiah 54, 55, and you see the picture of what it is that God wants them to know and what it is that he's revealed very clearly to us. So we had this handwritten indictment against us. Our guilt was obvious. And yet God nailed our indictment to the cross of Christ prior to Christ being put on the cross because then that blood washes over that indictment, obscures all of that truth that convicts us of sin, that has us in the stocks, destined for hell. This handwriting of requirement, which was contrary to us, was obliterated by the blood of Christ. And then let's read verse 15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Christ not only overcame evil, he just totally obliterated evil. On the cross, Satan was vanquished. All the minions of hell were vanquished. Yes, God has allowed them to remain free to some degree to torment those of us on the earth, but those days are numbered. God will end them, and then we will be free from their torment. But I have to ask you a question. Did, do you believe that Satan and his demonic hordes knew what was happening as they were killing Christ? Or were they as surprised as the apostles when Christ came back to life? I believe they were fooled. Why do I believe they were fooled? You'd think Satan had been around forever. He'd been around since the dawn of creation. How could he not know what God had in mind? 
because he wasn't in the mind of God. He didn't think like God. He didn't act like God. He wasn't God. I love capitalizing the hymns and the he's and the you's and the yours of God. But when I come to referencing Satan in my notes, I take certain pleasure in having it be a small H. H-E, H-I-M. He's not a God. He's not on a par with Christ whatsoever. So I believe they were caught up in bloodlust when they were crucifying Christ on the cross. Evil is irrational at heart. It doesn't think. It's about passion and fury, rage and anger. That's what evil is about. I want to read a few portions of what happened or what was in the minds and hearts of those that were about to martyr Stephen. These are excerpted from Acts 7, 54 and 57. They were cut to the heart. They gnashed at him with their teeth. They cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and they ran at him. These are not reasonable people. It's scary when you see videos nowadays of people that are like that, that are so filled with rage that you're not going to be talking to them. You're going to be punching them, shooting them, or running from them. That's the only way you're going to deal with people like that, when they're that enraged, when they're filled with bloodlust. So that's why Satan and his minions were so fooled that day and forevermore. Forevermore, they've lost that battle. But I can't end there. I have to share with you what Stephen's perspective was on what he was going through in Acts chapter 7, reading verses 55 and 56. But Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's when they cried out with a loud voice. That's when they stopped their ears. That's when they threw him out of the city and began to stone him. So see, while we were like these people, filled with rage and fury against the Lord, he saved us. Now for some of us, it's a wonderful experience that you were in the womb when he saved you like that. That's a wonderful experience. Not all of us were. Some of us remember a time when we raged against all things good on this earth, against God. But, as Paul said, but that was then. This is now. You've been washed. You've been cleansed. You are walking with the Lord. And if you're not, get right with the Lord. That's what the gospel is all about. You can do nothing to make yourself acceptable to the Lord by what you do. It's only by embracing the work of Christ, that you stand justified before God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this truth, a simple truth, that was so evident in the Old Testament that Jesus could criticize so openly the leaders of Israel in his day. And so we pray, Lord, that we would not obscure it, that even now in a time when the New Testament, all of the Old Testament has been revealed so clearly, we still attempt to obscure the purity of the gospel. We still attempt to rationalize away Christ's sacrifice 
on behalf of his children. We thank you, Father, for the imputation of his sacrifice on our behalf, for the imputation of his life of righteousness on our behalf. We revel in forgiveness and mercy and thank you for it. We ask you, Lord, to bless us in the meal ahead of us, that as we sacrifice our sins, we pour them out at the cross as having already been covered by Christ's blood. We ask you now to be with us in Christ's name and for his sake, for the building of his kingdom. Amen.